we got to uh, chapter 11 from uh, Genesis, and this is um, the last chapter of this series. Next week we will uh, start a new series, and um, well, later on I will explain why this is a special uh, chapter, but let's read it first. Genesis 11 from verse 1 on, and I will read it with you from the NIV. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole, whole earth. Now this <coughs> is the account of Shem. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and he had sons, other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Reu. And after he became the father of Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he became the father of Seruk. And after he became the father of Seruk, Reu lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Seruk had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Seruk lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot, while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. And Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abraham, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Which means they didn't come to Canaan, but they stopped halfway. 
Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. All right. Another interesting genealogy, just like we found in uh, chapter 5 also already. Um, what we're going to talk about this afternoon is a messy history, but perfect salvation. Which means from human perspective, it may seem like a, a whole mess what people are, are making. But from God's perspective, he is pursuing his plan and fulfilling his purpose. So, as I said, chapter 11 is the last chapter in this series that we will do. And that's not without reason, because... That's the next picture. Genesis can be divided in three main parts. The first part is from 1 to 11, which we covered in the last couple of weeks. And it's all about ancient history. It goes from creation uh, to the flood and uh, up till uh, the genealogy of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So that's the first 11 chapters. And then from chapter 12 on until 36, there we have the history of the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the last section, from 37 on to the end, chapter 50, that's where we have the Joseph cycle, which tells us about how Joseph first got into Egypt, uh, rose to power there, becoming under king, under Pharaoh, and that's how the, entire, the entirety of Israel's family got into, into Egypt, which introduces to the next book, Exodus, where we find Israel in Egypt. So these... These are the three main sections in the book of Genesis. And what we now just read, chapter 11, is the final chapter of the first section. Which also means this is the introduction to the second part, which starts off with Abraham. So to know how did we get to this Abraham, you need this genealogy that we just read in chapter 11 in order to find out, oh, wait a minute, uh, Abraham is one of the descendants of Sam the son of Noah, and God works through this genealogy, through Abraham, through his elected people, Israel, Abraham's descendants. So that's just to get the picture clear why, why there is another uh, genealogy in, in this chapter. Um, what, we, what we find here is God's salvation plan. God chooses from all the people of the world which we have read about in the previous chapter, chapter 10. I don't know if you noticed last week, but there were 70 people in the world that were um, offspring from the three sons of, um, of, of Noah, from Shem, Ham, and Yefet. 70 people like a, a number of fullness. And those were the people of the earth. Now, from all those 70 people, God narrows it down to one people, the offspring of Abraham. That's what this chapter wants to point out. Now, in chapter 11, we have um, two main issues. First, we read about the Tower of Babel, and secondly, we have this genealogy. Who of you has already heard about the Tower of Babel? Familiar? Yeah, okay. It's been famous throughout history. We have um, an interesting uh, painting by I think he was originally Dutch or Belgian, a painter from the 16th century, who painted this, and it's really an amazing uh, picture. You can see uh, a harbor down here, ships bringing over all the uh, materials needed for the tower. You can see a city on the other side, and the tower itself, it's like, well, an incredible invention 
of architecture, how people at that time were, it's, of course it's just an imagination, but to think of it that people at that time were able to build something like that, it's uh, really amazing. Now, um, this story has been inspiring people um, over the ages already, because it shows very much how capable people were at that time already, how inventive they were, how, how far their technology and their advancement reached. They said like, let's, let's build a tower that reaches up into heaven. Well, in the picture you can even see there are some clouds over there and the, the tower is even higher than that. that. That's how far they could go already. And um, they invent some kind of skills to, um, to bake bricks to, um, to, to strengthen uh, the, the, the tower by that. And well, they had been doing uh, scientific research for that and it turns out by baking bricks, you get, you get way stronger structure that can really build up to several hundreds of meters. So it's, it's really a story of human development and, and human skill, human invention and technique. On the other hand, it also shows the, the, the human pride I don't, do you guys know the word hubris? Like a, a person who is full of itself and actually thinks too much of himself. And that's, that's what we see here also. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's not, let's not be scattered, but let's stick together, combine our forces, and then we will achieve things. Whereas we read in the previous chapters that God's intention was for people to, to, to fill the earth, to, to scatter, and to, to work on the earth, to, to bring it into, into cultivation. Yet, people were like, we have our own plan. We, we know better what's right for us. In fact, the story of the Tower of Babel is also a story of core sin against God. We don't want him to rule over us, we want to rule over ourselves. So, it's also the story of disobedience where people did not submit to God, but wanted to be God themselves. And as I read it, it's also a story of divine irony. These people were like, look at this tower that we have been building. And they had, they had to look up to see how high it reached up into the sky. Now, look what God says. It's um, in verse 5. The Lord came down to see that city and the tower the people were we people, we look up, oh, look at our achievement. We have been doing great things. And God needs to look down carefully to see what those people on the earth are, are doing there. And that, that's a bit of uh, irony from God's side, isn't it? And secondly, it, it just takes this from God to put an end to it all. You know what? Let's just um, uh, mix, mix up their languages so they will not be able to understand each other. God just does it and... Well, they don't understand each other anymore. Hand me a brick. Meet Mondas. They don't understand each other anymore. And they have to quit, to quit the building. It's so easy for God to, to bring an end to this, to this human pride and, and all that. So, the final result of um, the Tower of Babel project <coughs> is that they abandoned the work, could no longer communicate together. And in fact, this was a curse that was put on humanity. Can we have the next one, please? The Curse of Babel. Do you find yours in it too? Who can read this one? Oh, I'm sorry, my daughter 
Faber is not here, she's learning uh, Korean right now. This is Korean. Uh, this one? How does it sound? <laughs> that sounds nice, right? <laughs> okay. Um, this one. Where? Can you Netherlands? Well, this is the, the result of what happened at Babel. We no longer understand each other. And perhaps the most difficult one for most of us is Toots Modjoru. We no longer understand each other because of what happened there. And I'm not trying to say that God cursed people with this, but it was a result of, of human pride, of human uprising against, against God. Yet, there is good news also. Because when we, when we look into the New, T New Testament at the event of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes down and fills the disciples of Jesus Christ, the curse of Babel is being reversed. Because what happens? Those simple fishermen from Galilee, they start to speak in, in all kinds of languages from the world. So that all those people that had come to Jerusalem from who knows man, how many countries, they could hear them speak in their own language about the great deeds of God. So what first was a curse because of human disobedience and human pride, God reversed it to become a blessing through the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. We are able again to understand each other. And I think this, this church, in fact, itself is a great proof of that. I mean, just look up from, from how many different places we come. And yet we experience this unity that only the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ can create. Now that's, that's a miracle that we would not have been able to make, only he himself. So, Tower of Babel brought us a curse, but the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, he reverses it and brings us a blessing. So what we see is that people have to, um, to leave the, the city, leave the project that they were building, and they are being scattered over the earth, just as God had planned, as God had um, told people to do. And um, we read about the three sons of Noah. In chapter 10, you can read the offspring for, from every son. And from the three, Shem turns out to be the chosen one. God chooses him to work his salvation plan through, through history. Um, when we look at the next picture, we can see um, the genealogy in a schedule. You know, I, I like schedules, so what we have read in, in this long chapter, I put it in a schedule so you can see it. Uh, Shem, when he was 100 years, he got a son. After that, he lived another 500 years, so in total, he became 600 years. Same with all of them. Canaan, we'll get to in a second. But here you can see the names, the ages when they got their son, the number of years they lived after, and here you see the total ages when they died. Well, there are some interesting things in this. First of all, it's another genealogy of 10 generations, just like we also read in uh, Genesis 5 already. But there's something more interesting to it when you look at those ages at which people die. What tendency do you see? It's going down. Perhaps the next picture makes it even more clear. This is another schedule, so you can get a visualization of what we just read. It's definitely going down. Now look here, Shem. 
he was 600 when he died. His father Noah was 950 when he died. So the line goes steeply down from there. And then it just, well, with some exception, it keeps gradually going down. See this line here? That's our life expectancy, about 80 years. So it's steadily going down towards that line. By the way, um, thinking of Noah being 600 years when the flood came, he lived well into this time to see his great-great-great-great-grandchild still. Just, just imagine that, those people being alive and still having their great-great-great-great ancestor around as being the, the one from whom it, it descended all. Ages go down. And that's what we also read in Genesis 6 already, <clears throat> when God saw all the evil that was going on on the earth, and he said, um, man's lifespan shall be no more than 120. And at that time, Noah himself still got 950, but it gradually went down. Now, there could be all kinds of reasons for that, uh, like a change in atmosphere or a change in uh, DNA or whatever. Fact is, ages went steeply down. Now, um, I don't know if you have read from your own Bible when we were reading the scripture or that you were reading from the screen, but those people who have a Bible with them, do you see something at verse 13? Any specific? It says, after he became the father of Shelah, Arphax had lived 403 years and he got other sons and daughters. With, in my Bible, it says a little B and it gives a, a little note and it says, the Hebrew Septuagint, also see Luke 3, 35, 36, it says, he became the father of Canaan. Where are we? Can we, can we get the schedule back uh, once more? Here it is. Canaan, here he is. So when you just read through the scripture, he's being left out, but it says in a note, wait a minute, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament, we have an extra generation there, which is left out in the regular translation. How can that be? And by the way, when you, when you look it up in, in Luke 3, where we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ himself all the way back down to, Ad to Adam, you also see that Canaan, is being put in there. So what, what's, what's happening here? I mean, is Luke wrong? Or is Genesis 11 wrong? Because in Genesis 11, the, gen the generation is missing, and Luke puts him in. So what's going on here? Um, things like this have been um, abused by Bible critics to tell us that, see, Bible's wrong. Bible cannot be trusted. Bible is fallible, not, not correct, not consistent. Well, you know what? Both Genesis 11 is right, and Luke 3 is also right, even in spite of the fact that it seems like they're contradicting with each other. For that, we uh, need to know some background information, and that's our next slide. Um, two centuries before Christ, uh, a book was written somewhere in Israel called the Book of Jubilees. It was like a retelling of um, the, the, the books of Genesis, the begin, beginning of Exodus, um, the story of, of Israel, how Israel got into existence, how God chose this people as his own people. Very 
very important book because it shows us a lot about the faith life of Israel in those days. It was a very important book for Jews at that time. Um, very, um, how, how should I say, they, they esteemed it very much, not as a canonical book like, like from the Bible, but it, it was used all over. Even in um, Qumran, which was a place in Israel where in 1947 um, many manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible were found, even there parts of the Book of Jubilees were, were also found. We don't consider this book to be part of the Bible, we consider it to be, we call it apocrypha, which means you can read them and they're useful to read, but they're not the inspired Word of God. By the way, the Ethiopian church does have them in their canon, but, well, we don't. Now, there's an interesting part in this book of Jubilees, which, as I said, is like a retelling of the story of Genesis. And that's our next slide, uh, Istvan. In chapter 8, it uh, tells us something about the genealogy that we have been reading here in, uh, in Genesis 11. <clears throat> in the 20th 29th Jubilee, so this book counts in Jubilees, 50-year periods. In the first week, in the beginning thereof, Arphaxad took to himself a wife, and her name was Rasueya. Well, we didn't know that from Genesis 11 yet, so that's nice to know. Daughter of Susan, the daughter of Elam, and she bare him a son in the third year of this week, and he called his name Canaan. Well, the M is a little different than the N, but it's, it's Canaan. And the son grew, and his father taught him writing, and he went to seek for himself a place where he might seize for himself a city. And he found a writing. A writing which former generations had carved on the rock. And he read what was thereon, and he transcribed it and sinned owing to it. For it contained the teaching of the watchers in accordance with which they used to observe the omens of the sun and moon and stars in all the signs of heaven. Whoa, he found a piece of rock which apparently had survived during the flood and he rediscovered how to do these stargazing, idolatry, paganism. Now watch this. He wrote it down and said nothing regarding it for he was afraid to speak to Noah about it, Noah was still around, lest he should be angry with him on account of it. Now, once again, this is an apocryphal book, which means we don't consider it to be uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it, it does shed light on what has happened here in those days after the flood. And it also gives some kind of explanation why Canaan was kept out of the genealogy that we find in Genesis 11. Just, just try, to, try to think of it. Noah, his three sons, Noah's wife and the wives of his sons, they came out of the ark. The entire earth is completely empty. And all the animals went out of the ark, these eight people, and they resettled on the earth. It was like as if, as if the entire world had been reborn. A new, fresh start after God's judgment on all the evil and wrongdoing that people had, had been doing before the flood. So, people start to spread, they, they, the, the number of people start to grow, and then we have this Canaan. And he finds this, this piece of rock which, which leads him into 
into paganism, into all this kind of witchcraft and evil doing for which years earlier the judgment had, of God had come upon the earth. And he did not dare to speak to it to, uh, about it to Noah because he knew, well, Noah is definitely not going to approve of this. Noah being the, the ancestor of the old family, the old, oldest one alive, Noah knew what life before the flood had been like. What evil had been done by people and what had caused God to destroy the previous world. Now Canaan rediscovers this and you know what he does? He reintroduces this evil kind of stuff, this paganism, this witchcraft. God is showing us in Genesis 11 how his plan of salvation works through the generations, how he works towards his chosen one, Abraham, Abraham's offspring, from which eventually the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will come. That's, that's what God wants to show us here. And, and now we have this Canaan here, who exactly works in the opposite direction. Instead of bringing light, bringing salvation, Canaan works towards destruction, witchcraft, darkness. Are you getting a little idea why it might be that Canaan was left out of this list? Where God is working towards his salvation, Canaan is working towards destruction. So if, if he's left out here in, in Genesis 11, why, um, why does his name show up then in, uh, in Luke, Luke 3, where we find the gene genealogy of Jesus? Well, there the perspective is different. Here in Genesis 11, God wants to show us his, his salvation plan. And one or something that works against his salvation plan should not have a place in that. In Luke 3, however, the perspective is to show that Jesus was directly connected to Adam himself. So through Joseph, through David, through Abraham, through Noah, eventually all the way back to Adam. That's what, what Luke 3 wants to point us out. And in that, in that picture, Canaan also has its place because he was one of the generations, no matter how evil he was, that there were more generations in the, in the lineage of Jesus that were, were evil, but there Canaan has its place. But here, Canaan has no place in the salvation plan that God has. God's plan is to, to fulfill his, his salvation through Jesus Christ, through his first coming, and through his second coming when he will, he will bring all things together and restore all things together under Jesus. And up till that time is being fulfilled, every single generation has its place in that. Even your generation, even you. So, again, a very interesting genealogy. But um, what does it teach us? What do we learn from this? Well, first of all, and this is a very important one, God is faithful. I mean, when I read through these, uh, the, these stories in Genesis 1 to 11, I'm like, man, I would have given up long ago if I were God. After the fall, at the time of the flood, I would have made an end to it. But God didn't. God is faithful and he fulfills his promises he sticks to his word he won't let go he didn't let go then 
He won't let go now in whatever your situation you're in, whatever you're going through. He will not let go ever because God is faithful. If one thing we learn from a dull list of names, a genealogy like we find here in Genesis 11 again, well, then it's this thing. God is faithful. He doesn't give up. Secondly, this God is working all things for our good. Sometimes we, we might not see it that way. If we are going through hardships, through temptations, through trials, but God is working out things for good because he has a good plan. And we know from the Bible that what God's ultimate plan is, is a new earth and a new heaven in which justice will live. That, that's his purpose. And his deepest desire is that you will be part of that, that you will have your place in that. And all that we experience here in this world works together for that final purpose. Sometimes it may, it may take a while before God's plans become reality, but his plan is good, is peace, is light. Thirdly, what we read, what we learned from this also, and I must admit, for this lesson we also need a little of this uh, apocryph uh, apocryphal book also, there is an opponent. He's real. He's active. And he will do all his best to try to stop God's salvation plan. Even right now. Even in your life. Not just in in big world history, but even in the personal lives of people. He will do anything to stop, to try to stop God, uh, get, get to his purposes also in your life. I mean, when you got here to church, did it go smoothly, easily, or do you sometimes experience that right before church, things come up, your bike breaks down, there's an argument in the family, or whatever. <laughs> it's just a small thing. The devil doesn't want God's purpose to be fulfilled in your life. Be aware of that. This opponent is real. But he will never, ever succeed to stop God's plan from being fulfilled. And the fourth thing, finally, God can be trusted. He is almighty God and he's a loving father. That's why we trust him. Because he is God, he, he cannot lie, and because he's, he's love. We know that his intentions are pure good. So you can trust him. When he tells you something, when he promises you something, when you read a promise in the Bible, you can apply it to yourself that this promise is true. Because God can be trusted. As we read in this chapter, God keeps on going with his plan. In spite of people, he pursues his goal. And he will get there. So trust him. And stick to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, dear Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we, we worship you and we adore your mighty name because you are God. We are small people around here for a couple of years and then we're gone. But you are eternal. And Father, when we read the Bible and we see how you have been working through history, through generations, we just stand in awe of your faithfulness. Dear Lord, that you have not long ago given up on us, 
It's just a miracle of your, of your grace and of your faithfulness. We worship you, Lord, and thank you that you have fulfilled your plan in your son, Jesus Christ, that through him you have brought restoration into this broken world. And you even bring restoration into our broken lives. Father, I pray that through what we have heard this afternoon, you would lead us to trust you more, to surrender to you more, to see more of your glory, your greatness, your fullness, and your love. Father, here we are. We give ourselves to you, and we ask you that you use each and every one of us for your purpose, to reach this world with your love. Father, open up our eyes. Help us to walk close with you. And when sometimes the devil tries to attack and to keep us back from, from doing your work, Father, help us to stand in the victory of Jesus Christ. Because he has overcome the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We worship you with all that we have. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.